And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have a very prolific author named Ron Felber. In this episode, we're going to be talking about his writing, his writing practice. He's got some great stories going all the way back to the 1970s. And uh, I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoyed having this conversation. Thanks. And on with the show. Looking forward to this. Me too, actually. Seem like a very, um, let's say, uh, eclectic fellow. I'm interested in everything. Uh, I think, honestly, that's what. If you're a writer or a filmmaker, you should be. It makes sense. I totally agree. You know, it's so funny. I was just thinking about this today, uh, with you in mind. I, I was thinking about a writer like Saul Bellow. Who, who's a, a really great writer, but he writes about one thing constantly. Now, I think about a writer like, say, Norman Mailer, who can write about the moonshot, who can write about, uh, you know, race relations in New York, who can write about anything. And it, it, it's like a predatory uh, intelligence. And uh, obsession is different from intelligence. And, uh, and, and I, admire, I, admire, I admire people that can move from one subject to the next explore it with fresh eyes as opposed to somebody that sees the same thing and there's so politics are like that these days i mean every there, there's this obsession and you just beat this dead horse over and over and over again about you know three or four issues yeah. but really at the end of the day it isn't what life's about and it certainly isn't what progress is about yeah i mean i feel like you're definitely one of those writers who uh, you have you seem to have overlapping interest areas but uh, you are also capable of talking about pretty much drastically different things. Like at one, like you, you, you go from at one point in, in some of your uh, interviews that I saw, you could talk extensively about China, extensively about Nazi super soldier programs. <laughs> I, I, and, but then. There was one point where you were doing a wonderful speech um, where you had, had, had made a remark about how there were, there were leaders in industry that 
because of the way their organizations were and the way things are, are incapable of doing their jobs that they were brought on to do. I don't remember the exact quote, but I, but I loved that speech. And yeah. it, it seemed the perfect way to describe sort of the, the number one symptom of the world we're living in right now. Absolutely we're all correct. kind of very incapable of doing the job we're supposed to do. We're in boxes. Yeah. We're, we're put in boxes. And, and my, my, my speech was about, uh, one of my speeches anyway, was about escaping the corporate box. And it was based on uh, the, the magic of Houdini. And, and basically what he came up with is most of the boxes that people are entrapped by are boxes of their own creation. The boxes don't really exist, except in their mind. It's like the elephant that gets tied to a post and thinks it can only go three feet. Then you take the, the tether away and it still can only go three feet. Yeah. That's us, you know? That's politics today. That's uh, America today, as far as I, I can see. And we're very, as, as a species, we, we're so susceptible to that conditioning. Uh, and I see a lot of that uh, occurring uh, in some of the subjects you, that you tackle. And, and we can unpack that if you want or not. Um, I'm, I'm very open to where we take the conversation for the most part. Um, I, the, only, the only thing on my list really was I had to introduce you as an author of Indeterminate Value for, because I have uh, a sick sense of humor. A <laughs> <laughs> man of Indeterminate Value. There you go. Um, that's not a bad title you have to admit a man of indeterminate value uh, maybe, maybe that'll what, be the episode did you know what the conclusion was we're all men of indeterminate value <laughs> that's true we don't know what our value is yeah. uh, my, my girlfriend wanted to know if uh, the title was inspired by the Oscar Wilde story uh, a woman of no importance you know, maybe, you know how it goes. If you, you're a writer and you do a filming, something sticks in the back of your head from 50 years ago or some, some crazy thing when yeah. you were a kid. And, and you don't even know that that's the case. So it wouldn't surprise me if that were, were uh, true. But I guess sometimes, you know, in moments of self-reflection, and I was in corporate America. I was running a corporation at the time, a fairly large one. And... Uh, and uh, corporations, you know, ha have their limitations. That's the sort of box that we talk about. Fortunately, fortunately, my numbers were so good. Our company's numbers were so good. Even though we we're owned by a German company, the, the, the um, CEO of, of the corporation, of the, of the global corporation, said, just leave them alone. And they did, which, which made them a lot of money and made my employees very happy, you know, because... Yeah. Uh, companies like particularly German companies, Japanese companies are very rigid in terms of you can do this, you can't do that. But if your hands are tied, it's very difficult to, to battle, particularly in industry during the times I was running the corporation. This, is, this was when 7 million jobs went to China, most of them manufacturing jobs. So people were bordering on bankruptcy, the big three, everybody's bordering on bankruptcy. So to grow, which we did on an average of 18% a year with profits, uh, growing at 30, 38% a year uh, for 18 years, unheard of. So yeah. they just left us alone. But in, in moments of reflection about exactly that, I came up with the idea, 
you know, what is somebody's value? And it's indeterminate. And that word, you know, I love like incontrovertible words like that, you know, so indeterminate. It just has such a nice ring to it, almost poetic. So I think that's where it came from. Yeah, I love that title and um, the whole concept in general, because it's very, very true. Um, we are all people of indeterminate value. Um, what may I ask? I, I mean, I don't know if this is confidential, what the industry was that you were in. Yeah, no, I was in the industrial chemical business. Oh, so industrial chemical. To, um, to BMW, to Porsche, to a lot of the automotive manufacturers, Ford, GM, Chrysler at the time, and, uh, you know, GE. So it was a, maybe a, a $365 million company with about 600 employees. So uh, it, was, it was a great job. But do you know something? It's so interesting. I wrote an article. It was called... Um, Criminal intelligence, the value of criminal intelligence. And it, it, it said what a great businessman John Dillinger would have been. You know, because, because I, I found in board meetings all the time, people would say, you hit this brick wall. It, it, it's, it's inevitable. There's going to be a brick wall, whether it's a competitor, whether it's price, whatever it might be. Name it, the brick wall. So you get all these MBAs and they look around and say, oh, we're screwed. This, there's no way out of this. But then you think of a Houdini or you think of a guy like John Dillinger, who's put in a prison surrounded by 500 National Guardsmen. He's public enemy number one in a prison in Ohio. Guards all over the place. National Guards surrounding the place. He breaks out and drives out in the in the uh, the warden's car. I mean, almost everybody would say this is over. It's over. But it isn't over. It's over if, if you lack the imagination. And so really my huge advantage was I wasn't trained in business. <laughs> I took the business courses later as I was doing things, but my background really was writing and, and literature. And if there's anything you learn from people like Rod Serling, let's say, or Ray Bradbury, or these kinds of writers, it's that, you know, that there's always some, some angle, some, some way of looking at the, paradigm that, that that gives you a whole different view and a whole different insight in what can and can't be done. So that, that's, that was so much fun. That sort of goes into a, a, a recurring philosophy on this show. And, and, and this is coming from somebody with an MFA mm. in writing is huh? I do think that there's something about graduate degrees that teach people how to stay boxed in and how to sort of lean on a paradigm. Yeah. And honestly, I was the least productive in my MFA and shortly in the few years after my MFA than I was in any other time in my life. Um, and and I, and I hear the same stories again and again from people who went to uh, MFA in writing, uh, MBA people, uh, people who went to film school. Uh, really? Yeah. It's just, there's something about... Uh, the way I don't know if it's the way it's taught or here are the normalities and here's why you should stick to them. Like, right. You know, you're not no, going to no, get no, the this next is what Elon you can Musk. Do. Yeah. This is, this is, and the way you do it. I, I'll tell you, you want to hear something funny. When I, I went to Georgetown, so I was in debt up to my ears. My, my you know, I had, had no money. My father was a truck driver. And so it was all loans and the loans were secured by my parents' house through a credit union, through a, a, a truck driver's credit union, a beer company. So, uh, 
when I got out, I was 40, 43, I remember the number vividly, $43,000 in debt. And that was quite some time ago. So it might be the equivalent of $150,000 now. So I couldn't get a job. Affirmative action was roaring. Plus the economy was uh, tanking. This would be in the Carter years, inflation, et cetera, and uh, gas lines. So I, I, I had to take, get a job. So I became a cop. I transported federal prisoners. And uh, I, you know, no offense to anyone, but I didn't really particularly like cops. You know, it's not like I wanted to be a cop, <laughs> but it paid at the time $14,000 a year. And they would pay for your education because they had programs now where they wanted to educate, you know, guys to, to have a, maybe a, a, a different point of view on criminals and stuff. So I, I went and got was studying my, for my master's degree at Georgetown and transporting federal prisoners in Washington, D.C., and these were, these were not nice people. I mean, there was a guy I wrote an article about, his name was Jesse Martin. He killed 83 people, you know, some incredible number of people. He was a hitman. And uh, his claim to fame was that he boxed Cleveland Williams, who once fought Sonny Liston, you know, so tough, tough guy. And um, so I transported him. I transported the Tullers. This would be a father and two sons who became radicals. He was an employee, he sent his kids to the Green Berets, they went AWOL, and they formed a radical terrorist group, hijacked a plane to Cuba, did bank robberies to fund their assassinations, uh, got caught, one got wounded, they wound up hijacking a plane to Cuba. Since they had killed a cop in Washington, this was the first place they came back. So I, I transported one of the tellers, you know, and I had nothing, no idea. So these FBI guys have rifles looking for snipers. I have a 38 caliber Smith and Wesson. I'm going, they're not such bad guys. <laughs> but you meet people like that and you see horrors, you know, true horrors. Yeah. Uh, that no one, no one else would see. Describing people as like somebody coming back from combat. You know, you really tell somebody, but they say, oh, well, yeah, maybe or maybe not. Or, you know, maybe it's exaggerating. But one way or the other, it was the best thing that ever happened for my writing. I was really annoyed about it. You know, I mean, it just wasn't what I wanted to do. But in the end, I started writing for True Detective magazine. So I would meet these characters and I say, yeah, this is a good story. You know, father, two sons, hijacked planes. So I write a novel, wrote a novel about it called Death Mission Havana for the Nick Carter series. And I wrote an article for the Washingtonian magazine. And then I met the Hanafi Muslim killers. This was uh Terrible situation. But Muhammad Ali was involved, Elijah Muhammad, uh, the biggest mass murder in Washington's history in Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's house. So, I mean, it was a great, great story. So I met these guys, awful, awful people, and, um, and uh, wrote about it because I knew the detectives involved. But that turn in my life, which, you know, when it happened, I said, you know, this is awful. This is the worst thing that could happen. It's like, frankly... It's like somebody taking you and plunging you into a sewer or something. And there you are. And you're living, you know, with no, no way out. But I guess you, you know, the whole idea of lemon, lemons and lemonade. I said, you know, this is a gold mine. And uh, it really changed my writing and gave me an insight into a other, another world I would never, ever have seen had I not been transporting these guys. And some of them really were con men and, incredibly clever. Some of them were incredibly ruthless. Some of them were the devil incarnate. And, uh, you, you know, you really start to understand human nature in a way that you never would selling insurance or 
or, or, or sitting in a garret somewhere and, and writing a novel. And have to live life. Yeah, well, you're seeing... I mean, I don't know if they're broken humans or they're just humans who are unfiltered. Like, maybe we all have a little bit, bit of them in us, that sort of sure thing. That's a whole big philosophical discussion. But how how much conversational contact were you able to have with some of these guys? Oh, all the, I, I got to know them very well. As a matter of fact, it's sort of funny with this guy, Jesse Martin. I was going to write an article, Jesse James Martin, a modern day outlaw, right? So I sit down with the guy. He's, he's an awful killer. I mean, cold-blooded murderer. So I, I, I got to know him quite well. So I go in the cell with him, and it's just me. And, you know, really, everything is understaffed in these prisons. So I go in, and it's, it's sort of me and him. And uh, so I said, so Jesse, how much did you get, like, for these, these hits, you know, for these assassinations you did? So yeah, sometimes I got 1500 bucks. Sometimes I got 500 bucks. Sometimes I got 200 bucks. I said, Jesse, so you would kill me for 200 bucks? He said, I'd kill you for 50 bucks. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're a cop. I, 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 go, I go, guard, guard. <laughs> Please let me out of here. <laughs> for a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> so... At what point, though, are are you so you, so you're writing for the for these magazines simultaneously while doing this? At what point are you doing a transition, and how does that transition look? I got so you know to, I'll be just perfectly honest. The guy I knew very vaguely because I sort of uh, was involved in, in moving him committed suicide. He hung himself. He got raped by a bunch of guys, and uh, when he got into prison, he was a, a you know a gentle person. And uh, when he got into into the prison, they just uh, destroyed him, and he hung himself. And uh, that was it for me. So I had a buddy who was uh, older than me, who was on the Nautilus, by the way, when it under, went under the North Pole. So he was a little bit older than me. And I said, you know, I got 5000 bucks in the bank, no debt. Let's get the hell out of here. So we drove from Arlington, Virginia, in a Valiant, to Acapulco. Got robbed along the way in the, by banditos in the hills. Met every wayward woman that was in sight. And uh, just, had, just, you know, just really had a cathartic uh, three, four weeks or so. Had no money coming back. We had to, had to like, like beg for gas at gas stations to get back to Virginia. But um, anyway, uh, that sort of did it. And I, I said, uh, this was an experience I had, but I, I really... I, I, I would say it rots your soul, you know, and I, I, it really was contaminating at some point. And I said, you know, I don't care what the consequences, I'm not doing this anymore. Because you really get a view of human nature that is, uh, is, is poisonous to you. And so, uh, and so that's uh, when I, I went back to New Jersey, where I was, was from. So I was in Washington at the time. And uh, I met a, a very nice man who made me a salesman for the company I wound up running. He looked at me and said, you know, you look like a guy that could use a break. <laughs> I said, <laughs> you got that right. And so he hired me as a salesman and I worked my way up to becoming CEO. Yeah. You know, that whole and writing, that, writing all along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd imagine uh, yeah. to get to where you're at now, um, you'd have to be writing all the time, but um that that statement you made just a little bit ago about how 
it rots your soul, mm. a job like that. I've heard the same thing about being a border guard, working oh, for shit. the naturalization section of the government, interacting with pe- people who are trying to escape hostile regimes. Yeah. Uh, that, or even just trying to stop drugs from coming in over the border. I mean, because yeah. it all overlaps. Like, it's a similar type of vibe where in a, in a couple of years, a lot of people just walk away. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And if, if you don't, and uh, this is why it's difficult, you know, with these with these cops, particularly in, in places like Washington, D.C., where there's, you know, there's murders all the time. You know, this is a violent country, you know. It's a yeah. violent, violent country. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, a, a cop literally can just walk into almost anything and somebody can just pull a gun and shoot him. I mean, that's, so that's the life you're living. And, you know, so even when I was transporting prisoners, a lot of them, I'd be, I was a single guy, so I was going to nightclubs and things. And, you know, I'd run into guys I transported who I knew were like, uh, you know, out, out for murder charges. They'd look at me across the bar and I like, carried a gun everywhere I went. You know, just no way to live, you know? Yeah. No, it's... um. But it was a blessing. Yeah, you made the best of it, I think. Yeah. Because <laughs> one of my, my dreams for society is that we only have cops on a very rare, as-needed basis, but it's very rare. For the most part, they're able to sit in their squad cars and write stories. That's yeah. the ideal utopia for us uh, that I have in mind. Is, yeah. is cops spend more time writing stories while you know just sitting in their squad cars than at any other time in their career. Um, can I tell you, tell you how I found you? Yeah, please. Sure. Okay, so um, I don't know if you're sick of talking about this book because every podcast I've downloaded uh, with you is mostly focused on this one book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think everybody has that thing they create that follows them around and they'll never be able to get rid of it. And I think for you, it's probably going to be Mojave Incident. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've often uh, said if I invent a f- cure for cancer... And then die. They're going to say, this is the guy that wrote the Mojave incident. And by the way, he invented a cure for cancer. <laughs> yes, uh, that's absolutely true. Um, Kevin Smith, the filmmaker, once said that um, every creator has a gateway drug to their career. So for mm-hmm. him, it's a movie called Mallrats. He, mm-hmm. he declared it's his worst movie, that he doesn't like it. But everybody always gets to that first before they end up getting used to what it it is he's creating mm-hmm. uh, with Stephen King too. There's for me, it, my gateway drug to Stephen King was the Tommy knockers. And so mm-hmm. Mojave incident for me was the gateway. And, mm-hmm. and it, it, I think it stands out because for one, the, the, the way it seems like you approached this thing was very much from the mentality of a cop investigating what these people went through. Yep. And that adds credence to it. And I, and my super secret open, uh, sort of open secret on this podcast is I do, I'm, I'm very well read on this whole phenomenon. I don't really focus on it much because there's an enormous amount of stigma and an enormous amount of just, we don't really know enough to really, mm-hmm. and I don't want to be a paranormal podcast entirely. But Yeah, I get it. I get it. No, they asked me to do follow-ups to the book, and, and I didn't for the same reason. I told, talked about it, obsession. You know, yeah. I, I think I wrote 
I think, uh, a definitive book on UFO and alien abduction. I think I've read a number of them and, you know, not again, not to an obsessive point, but I'm very familiar with the topic. And I don't know of a story that's anything like this. And well, that's uh, I was I lucky to... enough to stumble onto it. Yeah, that's what I wanted to, to talk about, though, as it concerns it. And then we can move on from it. Um, sure, no, whatever but, you like. Um, you know, I've read the John Max books, the all of the Bud Hopkins sure. books. I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, if there is a, a legitimate sort of track record of investigations, I will digest it. Sure. Um, and then I'll put it aside. I won't obsess right. over it. I'm just curious. Yes. What struck me about this was one, all the protocols you went through to make sure they weren't hallucinating. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to unpack that because it's out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both saw the same thing. That's a big yeah. red flag. They weren't hallucinating. Um, but the aggressiveness of it. I've never seen a case that was so aggressive mm-hmm. and intense and without any sort of um, purpose beyond torture. It just seemed like that's all it was for. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, but, but, you know, or if, if you look, you know, I'll just tell you, you know, it's, whether it's trite or not, I think it's true. If you look at... Um, what we do to, to lab rats or what we do to chimpanzees or what we, if you look at something and don't, don't know, and you say, well, you dehumanize, you know, the Nazis dehumanize Jews. And this is why they were a, or you dehumanize a class of people and you can have a genocide or whatever. This doesn't even enter into the equation because they would view us. I'm sure like some spe- a laboratory specimen. And, and I wouldn't even put it on the scale of a chimpanzee. I mean, they would look at it like, what a strange sort of thing. What, a, what an odd oddity. And I think the oddity, and I think it's a lot more unique than, than many, many people think, uh, is emotions and the ability to love and uh, the ability to uh, look into the future. But more than anything, the, the idea of feeling things. And I think that is unique, and it may be unique in the universe. More and more, you know, the early, early, 10 years ago, people were talking about how many Earths there are. You know, there's a, you know, a billion Earths out there. But that's not true. They look at it now, and they really start to examine what is Earth, and what are these other planets or these other stars or these other uh, environments that, that may be out there. And the more they look, the more unique Earth is. And um, I, I, so I think, that, uh, I think that it isn't about torture. It's about science. It's about studying the species that uh, you know, we call humans. Has anybody ever brought up uh, on, on, on any of your interviews the, um, the triangle? The, the triangle meaning the uh, searcher that... No, there was a triangle shape on them, if I remember correctly. Oh, oh yeah, no, no, it was a, yeah, it was an arrow. It oh, an arrow, an yeah, arrow, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. It was sort of an, a, trun- a truncated arrow. No, nobody's brought that up. But I thought oh, that was one, very unique. I wanted to mention it, uh, and and then this is the last mention I'm going to do of it because it's, it's all fine. Uh, there's That's so all much fine. content out there for the Mojave incident. Everyone who who's interested. Um, 
Jay Allen Hynek, who investigated all the Project Blue Book UFO sightings and was tasked yeah. by the Air Force to debunk it at all costs, oh, he yeah. first came around to believing something more was going on because of the Socorro incident. Mm-hmm. Socorro, yes. New Mexico, a cop who was the primary witness witnessed a tic-tac, essentially, landing yes. and yes. beings walking around outside. Mm-hmm. On the side of the ship was the arrow you described. You know, I've, I've noticed, I've noticed, I did notice that too, because I've, I've seen the same things, read the same things. So yeah, I did that, did, did make a note of that in my mind. And you know, the other thing that I found fascinating, um, b- before I was ever aware of what Fife Symington had to say, the governor, former governor of Arizona about the Phoenix Lights one, it was, it was really off my radar. I was writing thrillers. I was doing other kinds of things, but um when the Hesses described the UFO that that literally um, uh, engulfed, capped the whole valley, they talked about it as the size of a, of a bigger than a football field. Yeah. And when I first heard that, because that's a phrase I'd never heard before, I, I said to myself, "This, you know, this is this can't be true. This is, you know, this is too crazy." But Fife Symington and the people that that watched the UFOs and, uh, and saw them literally slowly passing over overhead at a pretty low altitude, Fife Symington described it as the size of a football field. So very similar to the arrow, there are these subtle things. And this is what detectives look for. You know, they look for the subtle things. Like you can say, well, it was blue and you can say it was green, whatever you want to say, and that's a generality. But when you say, yeah, it was green, and by the way, there were little speckles that came down from this rod, you know, that was, that was lowered down into the ground. All right, so it was big and it was green. But then if somebody else from another country in another village somewhere, some, some grammar school in Zimbabwe says, and it had this thing that had speckles on it, it, made, it makes the hairs stand up on your arms, and you say, this is true. This is true. And I, I think it is true. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, you have, you know, for, for the most part, people just regard it as a cultural thing. You right. Know, oh, it's only in America. Blah, blah. It's not no, true, no, 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 man. It's all over the world. People who don't yes. have access to film and television mm-hmm. seeing the same damn things. And um, the, the, the triangles, uh, the triangle searcher, uh, as it's called in the book. Yes. That's one of the most common ships associated with the abduction phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it's also a, a ship that is especially featured in a book called Night Siege, which is a, a, one of Hynek's last books, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the Hudson Valley, pheno- I don't know if you know about the Hudson Valley UFO I do. Yeah, I during do. the 80s, uh-huh. but that was all, um, it seemed like, it would appear almost nightly mm-hmm. trying to lure people out of their houses and people would come out, get this instinct to come out of their houses and look up and it would, they would feel like they were being scanned. Yes. yes. It's almost like it was looking for people. Yeah. And uh, I find that interesting. Yeah. No, and there so, are these, there are these details that, that just, um, that just stand out. You know, they're like spikes in the ground. You say, well, wait a minute, you know, that means something. I, I don't know that we figured all of this out, but, I think a couple of things that we figured out, I think that it's clear to me 
that uh, over time, the uh, encounters that have happened, whether it's like, you know, in the 49 or whenever it was, in the Himalayas, when they first took pictures and came up with the idea of uh, a flying saucer, you know, and you have these grainy images of, of things. Obviously, there's something there. Uh, what it is, no one knows. So they call it a flying saucer. Then you have uh, closer encounters, you know, more uh, specific uh, photographs, et cetera, more specific descriptions. Then you have the Barney Hill, the, the Betty and Barney Hill uh, in the 60s, where there's an actual abduction. And then you have things like the Phoenix Lights or the Hudson Valley situation. It's very clear to me that um, there's a desensitization that's going on. And now even when the federal government, you know, the Pentagon comes out and says, well, you know, there's 147 instances that we've studied that we have no idea what they are. We know that there's this craft. We know that it can maneuver. We know that it's not from Russia. We know it's not from China. Well, it doesn't leave you with many alternatives as far as an explanation. And I just have this feeling, and, and actually Dawn Hess under hypnosis says this. So I, I, they uh, let me ask her a couple of questions. The doctor let me ask her a couple of questions. So I said, um, I said, when will this happen? you know, this encounter between this, this face-off, this, this meeting, this uh, communion, this is, I don't know. So then I, I pressed her. I said, will it happen in my lifetime? And she says, how long will you live? Then an incredible answer. So I said, will it happen in my children's lifetime? And she said, it will happen in your children's lifetime. I think that's incredibly accurate. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Some part of me feels like it's happening. I mean, look yeah. at all the disclosure that's been going on. Yeah. I just had uh, Colm Kelleher. I don't know if you know who he is. He ran the investigations over at Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, oh, I see. Oh, yeah. I've heard yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I this guy. Yeah. This guy has seen some shit, bro. Uh, and uh -huh. he's used his investigations have used government money. Like $22 million went into the of government mm -hmm. money went yeah. into investigating yeah. the paranormal there. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we, we just had a huge conversation about how, like, all of this is going to is, is opening up now. Like, yeah. It's yeah. just and it's remarkable. Yeah. And uh, with that, with all that said, uh, has. Have you been invited to participate in conferences pertaining to the subject matter? Yeah, I have. Um, I have. I haven't really uh, taken advantage of that. I just haven't. And, um, and the reason is, again, I, I guess I really started out look, talking about my writing and your writing and filmmaking. I, I, I don't want to get hung up on a particular topic. Personally, as a matter of personal interest, I'm probably really on top of what's going on. But as far as getting out and being known as that guy that, you know, so I, you know I'm writing other books. I have another book that I just I think is probably the best I've ever done. And it also deals with the paranormal, and it's uh, it's um, documented by Harvard Medical School professors. Happened in the late 1890s, and just just, just a, a fascinating uh, a fascinating story that really almost links with all of this. And what li really links is, I don't know how many civilizations there are out in outer space. I'm not sure you have to go that far. I think there's a, a spiritualist, of course, in the late 1800s, mid 1800s, 
you know, just thrived on the idea of a spirit world, etc. Um, I think there is a spirit world. And I think that, that these phenomena are all linked. I think that I think there's just I, I think we know nothing about human existence. I don't think we know anything about human existence. And I think, you know, whatever we think is true today will certainly not be looked at as true tomorrow. It will be looked at as foolish. The way we would look at, uh, I don't know, uh, spontaneous generation or things like that. You know? well, I mean, if, if we did know anything, what would be the point of writing? Yeah, yeah that's true, too. I <laughs> well, anything or everything. Uh, you know, I, I guess we, I think what we get are glimpses at shadows. I think we get, you know, glints of light that we, that we follow. But I mean, if you look at, you know, I have a dog, maybe you do too. And, and I love this dog, but clearly there's a limit to what he sees and what he understands. There's a limit to it. He's not going to do calculus. He's not, you know, he's just not, he's not going to talk. He's not going to recite the Gettysburg address. It's just not going to happen. I, I think, you know, we're like that. You know, we're like a, a, a car, a high speed car with a governor on it. And the governor says, you, you can go 50 miles an hour. But the reality is that many others and maybe everybody else is going 10,000 miles an hour. And so we're like the dog. We see what we see. But it, it doesn't mean that that's reality. You know, it means that's what we see now. Yeah, well, but I think is, uh, we'll see you later. That, that goes into a, a sort of a, a theory of evolution where, um, I, and I am sorry, I can't cite the person live i'll have to look it up and put it in the description but at one point there was this philosopher talking about how we evolve as humans to survive in a version of reality that's more physical Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the more we evolve to survive this the less we're capable of understanding reality proper i think that's fair you know actually it was funny i have i had a personal trainer for a while and uh it was, it was a sort of pseudo intellectual guy, you know, so knew everything about everything and maybe not so much about anything, but said, you know, these people are so stupid. He's talking about some area of the country. They're so stupid. They don't even believe in evolution. And I said, you know, I have a doctorate. And I don't believe in evolution. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, Francis Frick, Crick had it absolutely right. The fellow that uh, discovered the, the double helix for DNA. And his, he believes in um, direct transpermia. He thinks that the odds of the human brain, as complex as it is, being created from you know, some bacterial growth, some slime in a, a swamp, in the, in the time frame that, that we have to do that, evolution could not account for it. What could account for it is that DNA was sent from another universe, another planet with asteroids, meteors, whatever. And so it had a head start on evolution. So the DNA was, was sent through irradiation coming through the atmosphere. It, uh, and it was all over the universe. It was an experiment. Send it everywhere. See where, where it takes hold. And it took hold in, uh, on Earth. And from there, the human beings developed. And it went through the evolutionary chain that, that you and I would be familiar with, but it didn't just start. It started because it was directly and intelligently um, transferred here. 
by another civilization. So in essence, you know, we're the sons and daughters of aliens. And, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. To me. Yeah, I mean, no matter how you put it, it makes sense because um, you could look at it too as, uh, I mean, I, don't, I digest so many philosophy content that uh, uh, and I'll always quote it. Uh, or And I won't do the quotes justice, but at one point somebody was talking about the Big Bang and mm-hmm. how don't look at it as something that has occurred but is occurring. Yeah. So you are a part of the Big Bang that is still yeah. transpiring. And I'm like, that is a, uh, an interesting way of looking at it. And so, it is. Um, and for some reason, your comment brought that up. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, I've heard, I've heard again and again, and I haven't been able to get anybody on to talk about it, uh, mostly because I haven't tried, but this idea that uh, our genetic sort of makeup has been tampered with, I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, enhanced, et cetera. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a, one of the great things about writing, one of the great things about the arts is, is really um, you're free to look at things like that. If you're, I don't know, uh, yeah, let's say a corporate guy, I mean, and your life is dominated by, you know, making a profit margin or sales number, et cetera, that your life is dominated. You really don't have time to, to think about these things or to, to um, in, enrich your own view of, of what's possible and not. And, and first of all, it's fun. But second of all, it's probably important because uh, at some point in time, maybe you'll figure something out that's, uh, that's true. Well, that sort of goes into another recurring thing that I find with a lot of uh... A lot of guests on this show is um, there's no there's so little freedom to experiment and learn and to discover. I mean, some of the best content I've ever created was because I I dissolved my comp like some years back. I dissolved my production company, stopped serving clients and went back to school. Mm-hmm. I did my BA in my mid-30s and my MFA in my late 30s. I'm mm-hmm. 40 now. And in that time, I only did super avant-garde art house experimental films mm-hmm. and writing. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was super weird. There were no rules. And it was just discovery. It wasn't mm-hmm. me serving a client. I wasn't producing a video for some company. I wasn't doing mm-hmm. a, a blog for some you know, person who was paying me. And the most rewarding content I ever created was created in that mindset. But if you're hired by somebody who says, oh, we've got to make $80 million on opening weekend or you're never getting hired again, you're not going to do your best work. No, no. No. You're catered to a common denominator that already exists. So you're not going to be inventing anything. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. You say, you know, what, 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 what had the biggest box office three months ago, five months ago, five years ago, let's try to put it all together. (laughs) Yeah. Into one package. We've got a hit. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, that's that's to me like. I mean, I think every industry has that sort of version of things going on where it's just a symptom of ideals gone awry. You know, yeah. uh, even in science, we were just talking about absolutely science to a certain extent. Um, I got this guy, Avi Loeb, who's going to be coming on. He's a 
scientist who works over at Harvard. He's a professor mm-hmm. there. Um, and he's an advocate for um, scientists sort of breaking out of... At one point in an interview, he described the science community as being mostly janitors who are keeping up the, the space. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. real scientists need to be more open-minded and more welcoming of anomalies. Whereas a lot of the scientists you have nowadays... They'll see an anomaly and they'll be like, oh, I wish that didn't exist. Well, as a scientist, yeah. you should wish that existed mm-hmm. and you should try to understand it. Yeah. And, and that's the same thing that's going on with the arts. Oh, I wish that, you know, I could just make this, this film on a formula and get paid and go home. That's yeah. not an artist. That's no, not even no, a craftsperson. That is a janitor. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> uh, that's very true. Not to Thank shoot you. down the janitorial profession, but <laughs> no, let's no. call it what Very it is. Very good janitor. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's actually one of the main reasons I invited that, that Avi Lobon is uh-huh. because I really agree with that philosophy. And we as creatives should hunger for breaking outside of a formula and exploring it. And, and, but, and to, mm-hmm. to accept the responsibility of training our readership to want it that's the other problem is is people got to want it yes well you know this is a good segue based on science and, and i'll tell you why because um my new book the unwelcome it's the, the curious case of clara fowler and um this happened from 1898 to 1901 and uh is uh, a contemporary of Sigmund Freud named Morton Prince, worked with the famous William James, the novelist Henry James' brother and you know, uh, the famous scientist, invented abnormal psychology and was the first uh, to teach it at Harvard University. He, he was involved in the study, along with Morton Prince and a fellow named George Waterman, heir to the, the Waterman Penn fortune, and again, a Harvard Medical School uh, professor. Uh, formed a team. The other side of the team was Leonora Piper, who was uh, the most famous spiritualist at the time, and a guy named Richard Hogson, who was president of the, uh, society, uh, the society of Psychical Researchers. And uh, they were uh, spiritualists. So this team had a science element that was like the highest caliber of, of its day. Sigmund Freud was actually involved in the case. And from the other side, you know, the, the, the elite of, of another belief, of another way of looking at, at this case. So what happens is a woman, um, and I had to research a lot, hire a detective to find out her real name, but her name was Clara Fowler. And she was turned over to Prince, who was uh, studying abnormal psychology by, uh, by um, Putnam, uh, James Jackson Putnam, another Boston Brahmin family and, and professor because he thought that Prince was more equipped to handle this. And, uh, and at the end, she had all the symptoms of demonic possession. It started with loss of appetite. It started with uh, neurasthenia, um, nightmares, horrible nightmares. Somewhere she'd be surrounded by dark robed figures, uh, you know, be uh, torn up by uh, wild animals, uh, things of that nature. So she couldn't sleep. So she suffered from uh, terrible insomnia. Um, but then it started to move into a whole other realm. And Prince was determined, 
because he was uh, in competition with Sigmund Freud to see the direction that um, psychiatry would go, whether it would go towards analytical psychology, psychiatry, or whether it would go towards a behavioralist point of view, you know, more pragmatic, more physical. And Prince uh, was hell-bent on becoming famous. And so this was, uh, you know, and, and, and setting the, the path for, for a psychiatry in the future. So he had a, he had a, a real um, penchant and motivation for proving this was, a, was not, was a psychiatric condition. And uh, in the end, Hogson argues with him and says, look, we have a woman who speaks in voices that are not her own. Her face contorts and she looks like another person. She, she talks in languages that she has no ability to understand or know, but she speaks in perfect Latin. You know, thing, things like that that are just strange and bizarre. She, she gets letters. She finds letters um, on her bedstead in the morning threatening her life. You know, you, you know I, won't, I won't repeat them here. But blasphemous letters say, I'm going to kill you. You should take a gun to your head. And I, I want to control your body. I, I want this body. You know, just really weird. And um, so they, they study it together. And it, and, and it goes really back and forth in terms of arguments. And Hogson's point of view is, look, just imagine in the year 1898 in Boston, Massachusetts, at Harvard University, we have a woman that displays all of the signs from biblical times, medieval times that we're studying. Instead of trying to find a disease or a name that captures this, what if it really is the devil? If it is the devil incarnate, it means there's a spiritual world. And if there's a devil, there's a God. And if there's a God, there's a life everlasting. We stand on the threshold of proving this one way or the other. You know, this is an incredibly important case, not for science, but for humanity. And so the stakes are very high. And uh, it's, it's just an incredible story. I got it from William Peter Blatty. I was a student at Georgetown uh, University and a writer, of course. So I was writing short stories. I had my first novel. So, you know, some typos all over the place and, you know, thrown together. And so... I knew, you know, he had a bestseller for 52 weeks or whatever. So I was hell-bent on meeting this guy and having him read my novel and hopefully helping me get it published. So I chased him all over the place. Finally, I found out that he had a, a room uh, with Billy Friedkin uh, and, a, and a secretary at the Marriott, Keybridge Marriott Hotel. So I went over there, and he wasn't there, but the secretary was. So I plead with her, you know, I say, you know, I'm a student, this and that. I've got this, my first novel. She goes, look, and behind her, she has stacks of books, novels that people have sent from all over the world. You know, she goes, this, this is, you know, he, he's, he can't read it. He, he's not going to read any of these. I said, look, you tell him that I'm a student at Georgetown, just like he was. And he wanted to be a writer and he was writing just like I am. I'm like him. You know, he comes from, uh, from, Hell's Kitchen in, in New York. I come from Newark, New Jersey. All right. My father was a truck driver. His father deserted him and his, his mother made a living selling jams and cleaning houses. I said, we're alike. Just tell him that. She goes, all right, look, I'll give it to him. And I'll tell him what you said. 
but that's it. I said, that's all I'm asking. So I go home for Thanksgiving and I get a call from Blatty. He goes, I love your novel. You know, yeah. Wow. This is incredible. I'd like to meet with you. So we meet and he says, you know, the novel is, uh, it's too personal. You know, first novels are always that way. So I said, so it's not commercial enough. He said, but you've got the brains and the will to be a fine novelist. So I'll tell you what, I move around a lot. I have a house in Aspen and Beverly Hills. I have one here in Georgetown. And I, I don't know where I'm going to be living two or three years from now. But I promise you, my secretary will let you know where I'm living and how to get a hold of me. You write a second novel, come see me, and I'll help you get it published. So true to his word, it's Academy Award week. I was a cop at the time. I had one suit. It was a winter suit. I flew to Los Angeles. I had $80. So I go to the Beverly Hills Hotel where I'm supposed to meet him. And, uh, and he's not there. So again, I'm in this begging mode. I look at the manager of the hotel. I said, man, you don't understand. <laughs> you know, I've been working years on this free novel. I mean, I've got to see him. He goes, well, I'm going to tell you what happened. He's getting death threats. So he had to move out of the hotel. You know, every sort of wacko. Because the exorcist? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so he goes, I'll tell you what. In his mail thing, there's a slip of paper with an address on it. I don't know whose address it is. I don't know where it is. But he left it there, like for messages. So I took my $80 and the address, and it was in Sherman Oaks. It took me $80 to get there because it was in the hills. And uh, I get out. I'm sweating profusely in this winter suit. I knock on the door, and Tippy Hedren from the birds answers the door. So she goes, what do you want? You know. So I tell him. He goes, well, he's out with the producer, Noel Marshall, having drinks. So he'll be back sometime, I guess. So I look at her, and I say, you know, I don't even have cab fare. She goes, well, come on in. I come in, and I swear to God, she collects lions. Now, I didn't know that. I sit down on the couch, and this, like, lion cub starts moving. <laughs> I thought it was a stuffed animal, right? <laughs> look at her, and I go, you know, it's been a long day, and I might have heat prostration or something. But is that stuffed animal moving? <laughs> she goes, oh, that's, uh, that's uh, my, my lion. I swear that another one, long and big, starts brushing up against my leg like a cat would, right? So I go, uh, is this, like, dangerous? She goes, not if you don't try to hurt me. I said, well, I have no intention of hurting anyone. She goes, then there's no problem. So Blatty comes back, uh, takes, takes us out to dinner. We all go to dinner. Uh, Tippy Hedren and her daughter, Melanie Griffith. And so we, we go out to dinner. Blatty <laughs> does exactly what he said he'd do. He looks at the book, which was a spy novel called uh, The Indian Point Conspiracy about terrorists taking over a nuclear reactor in New York. So he said, well, I'll do it. And I got to publish a small publisher. He goes, but I'm going to tell you something. I was going to write a book, but I'm not going to do it. I decided to do something else. And it's about this woman who was studied at Harvard University. And it's the most credible case of demonic possession I've, I've come across. It's documented up and down the letters, the notes, the doctor's handwritten notes. They're all there on file, you know, and, and it's there for, for you. I will call the library 
and get you access. And you've got, you've got a best-selling book. And that was The Unwelcome, The Curious Case of Clara Fowler. I tried to write it uh, back then, which would have been the early 80s, but I couldn't do it. I wasn't talented enough uh, to, to capture another time. I, you know, I could write a spy novel. I could write something contemporary, but it's very difficult to go back 100 years, 150 years and, and capture the times and whatnot. So I tried unsuccessfully and then went back to the kinds of thing I was writing and it didn't get published. But then about two years ago, I said, you know, this story is just, it's just too good. And maybe now with the experience that I have, you know, and the techniques that I've learned, I can do it. And, uh, and I did. It's called The Unwelcome. And um, is, is it out yet or is it coming out? It'll be out uh, in September or so of this year. Okay, I'm gonna. Yeah. I'm definitely gonna get hooked up with that. Uh, I'll tell you. It, I, I say it's about uh, about murder, science, and demonic possession. And yeah. actually, there are a couple murders involved that are, are spine spine chilling. It becomes a detective story almost. Uh, so it, it's uh, it's really a good one. No, it sounds like it, it kind of rolls in a lot of the interests and and themes that you already know how to deal with. Exactly, uh, and yeah. I and I appreciate too the not doing it until you felt you were ready. Yeah, I mean, that's I didn't know if I was ready. Decision. As you know, you know, you embark on a movie or a project that's ambitious, you know, and and it's almost like I don't know a tightrope walker or something, you know. Say, well, I got to go from this building to that one, you know, and it's a little windy and this and that. I'm not sure I can do this, you know. Yeah. But then when you do, it's incredibly gratifying. And, um, you know, I mean, the people involved in the book are Harry Houdini, who was very famous then, you know, William James, as I mentioned, um, you know, H.H. H. Holmes, who was hanging around Jack the Ripper. They're all in this sort of time period. And uh, it, it, they link. They mm-hmm. link. And, um, and it's just an extraordinary ending. I look forward to reading it. Um... That's a great backstory, because you know we always hear about like Melanie Griffith grew up with parents who had lions and all that, and and on top of all of the the experiences you've had, that just was like the, to me is a cherry on top. Like yeah. you among your friends, you must be the buddy with all the stories, you know, the the drinking buddy with all the stories, you know. Uh, it's not not so much like that. I mean, <laughs> you know, writers are, are are different personalities, and uh, you know. Uh, I'm I'm not as gregarious as you might think, and you know uh, I have my girlfriend, and we we have great times together. And uh, um, you know, I teach I teach graduate school, I teach doctoral candidates, uh, creative writing, but um, you know uh, in terms of backslapping and, and being this great raconteur, no, not so much, not so much. But I can tell a good story. Yeah, sure as shit can. Um, we'll definitely put a link to the new book in the description. I'm proud of that book. I'm really proud of that book. It's, it's so funny when you're doing things. You know, I remember, I remember, uh, I, I watched an interview where somebody was taking Muhammad Ali, who was was older and suffering from a, a dementia. You know, and they took him around and showed pictures of him beating Sonny Liston. And, you know, great moments in his. Uh, in his life. And he said, you know, I don't feel like that was me. I know I did it, 
but I don't feel like it was me. And I would say that too, when you write something, you know, it's a moment in time and then you move on to something else. And I don't say that you forget that you did it, but it's not what's important to you because you're looking at the new thing. And then when you look back at it, you say, oh, damn, that's a good book. (laughs) And that's the way I feel about uh, Mojave Incident. I think it's it's probably the, the most outstanding book. I wrote a book, uh, Il Dottore, The Double Life of a Mafia Doctor, which was turned into a TV series and did very well. I have another book uh, called The Hunt for Kun Sa that um, was purchased by um, uh, Beach House Pictures. And they, uh, they, they're doing a, a documentary on it and then a, a dramatic series. So the documentary's filmed and um, they're going to be shopping that around uh, soon, like this, early this year. And um, Chris Smith, who did Tiger King for Netflix, Tiger King. Yeah, that's who's directing it. (laughs) So, yeah. So, you know, little by little, things are, things are coming into, into focus. And I really think this new book is just, you know, just imagine, you know, the dark, dank streets of of downtown uh, Beacon Hill, 1898, you know, glass, you know, uh, gas lamps, uh, a killer at large, um, you know, it, it's uh, these Harvard professors dealing with these spiritualist uh, occultists. And, uh, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sold. I'm you know sold I mean? on the whole but thing. Just, oh, yeah, just, it's just great. Visualize this. Just visualize yeah. it. And it's uh, and by the way, the, the, the best character is, is a, a character, a real character. Um, and uh, he was a, a marshal in Fall River where there were two uh, murders of infants that uh, he was convinced the father, Clara Fowler's father committed these murders. And so he wanted her to testify. So he is sort of stalking her and finds out he's with the psychiatrist. She's with the psychiatrist. And so he's the observer watching all the goings on in the house and et cetera, and trying to put the pieces together on exactly what's going on. And uh, quite a character in real life. He was a, a marshal. And, uh, you know, like an old Western sort of like Wyatt Earp kind of guy, you know, and uh, very uh, flamboyant and, uh, and interesting. So uh, he's one of the main characters and it becomes this kind of uh, uh, turn of the century murder mystery, you know, and it's, it's uh, just got a texture to it that I really, really like. You know? Yeah, it sounds like it because it's also a great moment in history to have. It is a story like that. And yeah, Fall yeah. River recurs uh, with really creepy things that have happened there. Like it's the amazing Borden that you're saying that. Lizzie Borden. Amazing. It's where Lizzie Borden, yeah. Lizzie Borden murders happened. Fall so, River I mean, is creepy. A creepy, really a creepy town. And when you read the book, the focal point in many ways is Fall River. And Lizzie Borden and the whole situation, because that's where Clara Fowler comes from. That's where she was born and raised. And uh, so it's just, uh, you know, we talk about these sort of connections, you know, the the arrow that we talked about or or the the, the description as big as a football field. This story is loaded with these kinds of little glints of coincidence that you say, wow, I mean, what does this mean? You know, obviously there's a pattern There's something that I should be reading into this. Exactly what is it? Well, I wonder if, now that I'm thinking about it, I wonder if there are tales that go further back on that area, like maybe Native American tales. 
Uh-huh. Uh, that would be uh-huh. an interesting. Well, research. there's certainly scales that go back to um, to the uh, 18th century. Yeah, this is a town that uh, you know suddenly, you know, has has a, a slew of murders. You know, a 51 year history goes like without any any murders. Then all of a sudden, there's like seven murders. You know, within miles of each other, uh, vicious murders, uh, axe murders, things of that nature. And the Fowler family is involved in these. So it's, uh, uh, it, it's more than coincidence. The detective, as a matter of fact, is so, so cool. He makes a map. Well, this is where the Manchester murder happened, where a guy named uh, Jose Carrero, uh, within six months of the Lizzie Borden murder, axe murders the wife of his boss. Very similar. Because Lizzie Borden is three miles away. The, the, the Fowler situation happened four miles away. So he starts like making these little maps and timelines and uh, it becomes you know, pretty creepy, pretty creepy, but true. It's a true story. Okay. I got to read this. I can't ask you any more questions until I read it. And then I'll have you back on to answer questions. I love it. I love it. God, that sounds like a great follow-up. Uh, and I really, I hope it does well. I mean, uh, what you waited like, what, 30 years? <laughs> 40 years? <laughs> However long crazy, it's crazy. been since The Exorcist came out, I guess. But um, Well, that would be that would be 72. So, so that's do the more math, than 40 what years. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's that's uh 49 years something like that yeah. but uh 50 years 50 years in the making how about that? <laughs> it's got to be good um <laughs> and it came from blatty he just handed it off to you with a silver he it, like you know, that's wonderful we wonderful backstory. very good friends i mean he he was really a guy and you know he died not so long ago maybe four years ago and i think he was 89 and uh it was it was funny i mean we had a relationship where he, he would, I would just show up. Now I knew him pretty well. So if I had something that I thought was really good, I'd, I'd go to Washington, D.C. and I'd ring his doorbell and here I am. So he looked at me and Mark Jaffe at the time was president of, uh, Ballant, of uh, Bantam Books. And so I'd met Mark Jaffe once or twice. So I show up in his doorstep. He looks at me and he had, you know, was up a, a bit of a pedestal there before, you know, a step. So he's looking down at me, he goes, why are you here? <laughs> so I said, I had this new book. He says, why aren't you camped out at Mark Jaffe's doorstep? I said, because Mark Jaffe wouldn't let me in. <laughs> well, you will. So he said, ah, come on in. And so when they were making uh, Killer Kane, the ninth configuration, Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane, I was there. I was there uh, uh, the night that he got the Oscar. You know, so, so it was really, you know, just fun and fascinating, you know. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, all right, I think that's I've gone I've gone down all my bullet points. I mean, we could we could keep going if you want. I don't know if you have a hard out. Um, I mean, you could talk about you could talk about China. You can talk about super soldiers. Well, I'll tell you what I, I could. You're talk one about. of the best guests. Um, uh, one of one of the things <laughs> I could talk about is the Kunsaw story. So this is the hunt for Kun Sa, yeah. uh, drug lord of the Golden Triangle. So I, I can't remember the year. Let's say it was 15 years ago. 
so I had a friend that was a Green Beret. I went to high school with him. And uh, so he, he had this Christmas party. Every year he'd have a Christmas party. And he had a couple friends that were FBI agents. And so they were low on the totem pole. They'd be like doing surveillance stuff. So they'd come into this party dressed like hell, bedraggled, you know, not sleeping for nights. And you know, you'd look, we'd make fun of them. You know, we made fun of them. And it's like, what, look at you, man. Like, what are you doing? You know, don't you want to comb your hair or something? You know, do you want to take a shower or something? So anyway, we'd, we'd sort of make fun of them. And then uh, the guy's name was Nick Caruso. So he goes, and he wasn't my friend. He was my friend's friend. He goes, I got a good story for you. So, you know, everybody has a good story, you know, and not many of them are really very good. But so I, I was writing, working on another book at the time. I don't remember what it was, but I was right, you know, deep into it. So he tells me there's this drug bust that we're doing. Delta Force is involved. You know, the CIA is involved. This is the biggest heroin dealer in the world. He supplies 70 percent of the heroin. And he's in Burma. He's a warlord in Burma. And we're setting up this huge sting to take down him and his army of 30,000 troops. So this is like science fiction to me. It's so far removed from, you know, where I am. So I say, you know, it sounds, sounds good, but I'm thinking a drug book, you know, this, but, you know, Burma it has its, you know, the golden triangle, you know, it has its allure. So I finished the book. And then I said, you know, now what am I going to do? I'm thinking, you know, what's, what's a good story? I'm, you know, one night in the middle of a dream, I said, you know, Kunsa, what does that mean? It means Prince Prosperous in Burmese. Turns out this guy came from nothing and was the most brutal warlord, maybe in the history of ever. They call him the, the, the most uh, dangerous man to civilization, the monster the greatest monster to civilization. This was a guy named William Brown, who was ambassador to Thailand at the time. He had this army of 30,000 armed to the teeth, which was bigger than the Burmese army. And he lived in the jungles, the Shan state jungles. So I got back to this guy. I said, you know, I want to go to Burma. And uh, so he goes, all right, I'll go with you. And then we got our other friend, the former Green Beret. So I said, the three of us, we'll go to Thailand. We'll have a good time. I'll research my book. Maybe get me some interviews with some of the, the guys that were involved. And, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the special agent in charge of, of, we had no relations with Burma. So uh, the country didn't. So I go there and the DEA guy's wife won't let him go. The other guy, his wife won't let him go. <laughs> So I said, screw it. I mean, I got these tickets paid for. I'm going. So I went by myself. So I went to Thailand and, uh, and I hooked up. But he did hook me up with people in Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai. And I got tremendous information. And uh, about this huge thing it was called Operation Tiger Trap. And the reason it was called Tiger Trap is because Khun Sa believed that the, that the um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, that a tiger penis, when it was uh, uh, fossilized and ground down into a liquid, was a great aphrodisiac. So that's why they called it Operation Tiger Trap, you know. And so it had all kinds of phases. They had uh, the CIA was putting Beechcraft thirty thousand feet up to intercept his uh, messages. He had commanders in chief. He had a, a huge organization. 
turned out, and I, I went deep into this, it turned out that uh, I interviewed a couple military guys that had gone to West Point who were involved in transporting the drugs, the, the, the opium balls, tar balls, from Burma to Thailand, where they would be processed into heroin before they went to New York, Hong Kong, et cetera. And uh, that it was a military operation. And uh, the CIA was funding their black operations through the, through the, uh, the sale of heroin, through the mafia, and through Chinatown, and uh, particularly the, the Asian market. So the Asians controlled most of it. And, uh, and this became the new route after the French connection was shut down. So this was a massive story, a massive story. And uh, so I wrote it. I wrote it 15 years ago or something like that. And uh, a small publisher, Trine Day, who publishes sort of, you know, I won't say radical, but uh, not mainstream sort of things. There's not a lot of publishers would touch it because, you know, it's an explosive story. And I had guys actually on tape. Oh, yeah, you know, I had my platoon and this is what we would do. And, you know, that's staggering, right? Staggering to me because I lived in Newark at the time. And uh, out of my baseball team, my grammar school baseball team, five out of nine died of heroin overdoses before they were 20. And it turns out, because I was good friends with Bill Bonanno, the mafia guy, Salvatore Bonanno, Joseph Bonanno, the Bonanno crime family. I, I knew him quite well. And uh, it turns out that they were using pizza parlors. Talking about points of distribution. There are pizza parlors all over the place, all over the country. So this is, was their method for distributing the heroin. And right across from the pool hall, where my friends used to hang out, was a place called the Cat's Meow. And that was the heroin distribution point. And that's where my friends got their heroin. And so I, I was able to put these pieces together. And it was a, it's a staggering staggering picture. So they're doing a documentary on Kunsa now, and, and then they're going to do a dramatic series about Operation Tiger Trap. But it, it, that's how things have been very fortunate to come upon stories like this in ways just like, just like I, I mentioned. You know, that's how I came up I came the Mojave incident. You know, a fellow that was a salesman that worked for me had a best friend who he played football with. He said, you know, he doesn't want to talk about this. I said, but, you know, they don't sleep. they sexual dysfunction they're just you know he can't work she can't you know they're they're not good and i just think it would be good for them to talk to you and i think it would be good for you to talk to them and so i went in very skeptical and um came out and saying you know these are this is the backbone of america i mean these are you know college graduates they've got children they're well-edged they've got good jobs you know this is you know, these are not flaky people and that's when I decided to uh, to write it. Before, I do have a question. Actually, you reminded me I did have a question about the Mojave incident that I forgot to yes. write down. But before I go into that, uh, going back to the CIA drug dealing story, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which for some strange reason does not surprise me. Uh, <laughs> it surprised me then because um, I was angry about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that once you find out, it's really hard not to be angry, but then over time things sort of make sense. But um, mm -hmm. were you ever 
under the impression that simply by knowing it, you were in danger? Because I feel this like be, that's... The, which, which story are you talking is about? the CIA story. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I got a good story for you there. So I had written a book called The Privacy War, and uh, it was about the FBI, the corruption of the FBI, and how they targeted a congressman that was doing um, uh, uh, hearings on the FBI's invasion of privacy, meaning blackmailing people, uh, bugging them illegally, uh, listening devices. So he was a congressman named Neil Gallagher. So uh, J. Edgar Hoover sent Roy Cohen, his right-hand man, to Gallagher. He said, look, there are two kinds of people in J. Edgar Hoover's life, friends and enemies. There's nothing in between. He wants you to stop this privacy hearing. Call it off. He said, if you call it off, you could be vice president of the United States on the Lyndon Johnson ticket. If you don't call it off, you'll be in a federal penitentiary. So this guy was a war hero, uh, two wars, Korea and World War II, silver medal, star medal, bronze medal, a couple of purple hearts. He said, you know, some little creep in Washington, some little guy on a desk is going to tell me what I can do. I'm a congressman of the United States. Turned out that cloakrooms were bugged. Everything was bugged. He wound up going to prison. And uh, my book told that story. And so I was doing the, the Kunsas story right after this other very controversial book had come out. So uh, I lived in a, a house, large house, with my kids and wife in a very rural area, in a forest. So you had to really take this winding road to get there, gravel road to get there. It was really tucked away. We had a milkman. And he would come and deliver the milk every morning, you know, and a mailman that would come and, you know, very typical stuff. So I was out doing an interview, actually, with Bill Badano. And that's the other thing. You know, this is a mafia guy I'm dealing with in pretty close terms. So I was a little paranoid. So and, and for good reason. So I come back at about three in the morning from New York and outside my uh, our house is a uh, unmarked. Um, like Brink's truck with all the markings off it. So it's just silver, just scrubbed chrome. The engine running and the lights on. Three in the morning, parked. So I had a driver at the time. A a friend of mine, you know, was driving. I was so exhausted. So his name was Patrick. So he had picked me up late. He was late in getting there. And I was annoyed. It's three in the morning. So we get there and I go, uh, he goes, what, what's somebody doing? And I said, look, it's, a, it's like a Brinks truck. I said, what is, what is this about? Because the FBI has these vans and whatnot that they use when they're bugging things for surveillance. And three in the morning, engine running. So he goes, well, I'll tell you what. I'm not going to just sit here. I said, stop the car. Stop the car. I go up to the, uh, to the vehicle. It turns around <laughs> and it leaves. So I get back in the car and he goes, I'm going to make it up to you for being late tonight. We're going to follow that guy. So we tear ass up to this, <laughs> uh, this vehicle, right? And so I know the area and it's like a lot of these winding roads and some of their blind roads, you know, driveways that don't go anywhere but a house. So we chase this thing. It pulls into a, a uh, what looks like a road, but it's really a driveway. And I know that. I said, now we've got him. He can't get out. So we take the car and park it so that he can't get out. I get out of the car. I go, who are you? 
And what are you doing in front of my house at three in the morning with your engine running? He goes, I'm your milkman. <laughs> he was the milkman. He had this truck because the weight of the milk was so heavy. That he, needed- <laughs> <laughs> he goes, he goes I, I, I'm your milkman. <laughs> Uh, that must have been somewhat deflating. Oh, they're not on to me. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked at him and I said, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Um, so the, when you brought up the Mojave incident again, I, re, I, I, ref, I remember at one point you had talked about on another podcast about how the land that it happened on has been retained by the military. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you knew when about that happened. Was it immediately after that or was it after the story got published? Yeah, or does it, it was, have it, nothing to do with it? I know. I, I think it does have a lot to do with it. I think that um, the, the Hesses went back literally days after uh, to just try to understand what happened to them. <clears throat> and they found it was just very benign. I mean, you know, it was like, which was really the mind-blowing thing. You know, what happens, what happens when something so momentous happens in your life and then it's gone and you can't reclaim it, you can't re-see it, you can't rewind it, it's just gone. It's maddening, you know, it, it's maddening. So they went back um, a couple of days later and then um, they went back after that and that might've been a month later and it was locked down. There were fences and whatnot, and you couldn't get into that area. Hmm. So, you know, soon. More than a coincidence. Yeah, maybe. Uh, this was a great show, man. Good. I'm glad. So, how how do you do this now? How how much yeah. time do you you have so, for your practice? Because we've been going for quite some time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the most the longest episode I've had was almost three hours. Wow. The shortest one was about 20 minutes. So okay. it really depends. This this uh-huh. is an earmark of a conversation I enjoyed. So, <laughs> um, Yeah, it was fun. I really, I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. What will happen next is uh, I'm going to edit. I'll edit over the weekend, and then I'll schedule it to go live either Monday or next Monday. Right. Um, depending. I'd like to do this again after your book releases and once I've read it. I'd love to. Because uh, really and. Like and we could philosophize more. <laughs> we'll I solve all the problems. We'll yeah, solve universal good. problems. <laughs> all right, Eric, a, thanks so much. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.